Good morning, everyone. My name is Chase Callahan, and I'll be doing our scripture reading for today. We'll be in Matthew chapter 28, verses 18 through 20, and reading from the ESV. All right, and starting with verse 18. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. Thanks be to God for his word. If you're not already turned there, you can go ahead and start turning your Bibles there as I pray, um, and we will, we will jump into God's word that he has for us today. Father, in these next moments, I ask that our hearts, Lord, would be good soil, fertile soil for the truth of your word to come and to take root, to grow and to bear fruit for your kingdom, Lord, as we seek you above all. Lord, not, not the things you can do for us, but you yourself. Lord, that, may that be the desire of our hearts today. And may we go forth from this place with your good news in our minds, spilling out from our hearts through our lips. We pray this thing, these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So last week was Easter. If you missed it, Resurrection Sunday, the high holy day of the Christian faith. Year after year, Christians all around the world have celebrated this day and the days leading up to it. On Good Friday, of course, Jesus, we remember, was crucified and was buried. But on the first day of the week, that following week on Sunday, he rose again, defeating death and sin proving himself beyond any doubt to be the long-awaited Messiah who would enter death but could not be held by it. On Easter Sunday, Jesus validated his words to Martha in John 11. I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Easter was last week, but here we are again. So now what? We celebrated that Christ is alive, that our sins are forgiven. So now, do we just wait around till next Easter? Well, hopefully your answer is, no, Jared, idiot. <laughs> of course not, thank you. Indeed, the reason that we gather here, Christians gather on Sunday, Sunday after Sunday, week after week, is in remembrance of what Christ did on that Easter Sunday. But news that is this wonderful, this monumental, this historical not only needs to be remembered and celebrated, it demands to be shared. The resurrection of the crucified Jesus is more significant than anything that will come across your Twitter, Facebook, TikTok, whatever timeline or feed. 
more groundbreaking than anything that you'll be watching be covered on CNN or Fox News, more universally relevant than anything mused about by the World Economic Forum. This is the news of the only source for humanity to find redemption and eternal joy. It is the news of the one who can restore us to our creator and to the true purpose of our life. And just as God had a plan for Christ to come to pay the debt to cover sin and to conquer death for all who would believe in him, just as Christ had a plan there, just as God the Father had a plan working together, so also God has a plan for us to go and proclaim this good news that we have believed. This plan is what you may have heard referred to as the Great Commission that was just read. The Great Commission is probably something that the vast majority of Christians have heard of. However, there is a sad reality about the Great Commission. It's that while the vast majority of Christians have heard of it, the vast majority of Christians today live as though Jesus merely gave us a good suggestion rather than the Great Commission. Why is that? If this is the greatest story ever told, that also happens to be true, by the way, if this is the only hope for the world, then why do so many believers treat it like bonus points instead of like a syllabus requirement? Perhaps it's because in one way or another, we have misunderstood the nature of Christ's authority, Christ's commands, and Christ's presence. And those three aspects we are going to look at today in three sections from this text. So let's begin looking at the first of these, that Christ's authority is unequaled. This is from verse 18, which says, And Jesus came and said to them, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. I think there are two primary ways that we can misunderstand the authority of Jesus. The first is that we can see Christ's authority as limited in its reach. We might see him as a sufficient savior to save us from our sins, while at the same time, considering him to be a lacking Lord. Lacking as the Lord of all life, including ours. That title, Lord of our life, we were happy to keep for ourselves. While in our minds, we limit Jesus to the position of nothing more than a spiritual janitor whose role is to clean up after our sin mess, but never tell us how to live. This caricature of Jesus only cares about fixing our brokenness so that we can get on with being whoever and whatever we want to be. But there's a huge problem with such a weak Jesus who has such limited authority. Tell me, why should we believe that a Jesus who has no authority over our lives as we live them would have the power to pay for our sin and to defeat and destroy death on our behalf? Why should anyone believe that Christ can offer eternal life to whomever would believe in him if he has no say over your life right now? 
You know what the word all here in verse 18 means in the Greek? All. It means all. Imagine Muhammad or Buddha or the Dalai Lama making this claim, the claim that all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Now, politicians and scientists today make some outrageous claims, but no one in history has ever declared what Jesus declares here. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. The Bible makes clear that Christ's authority was not lesser prior to his resurrection. Rather, his resurrection merely vindicated the authority he has always had from before the foundations of the world. Nothing, also again, meaning nothing is outside of Christ's power. It does not function within the laws of physics. It establishes and upholds those laws. Nor is it merely physical, but is also spiritual, transcending all of reality. Christ's authority isn't limited by time. It did not have a beginning, and it thus has no end. His authority predates time and space. For in the beginning, John says, was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. And at the name of Jesus, Paul also reminds us, every knee shall bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. As John Stott, famous theologian, author, and pastor from London said, only because all authority on earth belongs to Christ, dare we go to all nations. And only because all authority in heaven as well as his have we any hope of success. But there's also another way that we can misunderstand Christ's authority. Not only can we limit it in its scope and its power, but it's that we can misunderstand it as tyrannical, as if it only is controlling without being loving. This misunderstanding comes from a failure to trust that Christ actually has yours and my best interest in mind at all times. To one degree or another, every one of us has been let down by human authority, whether it was a parent, a pastor, a teacher, a coach, a boss, or even a president, maybe, who's disappointed us. We are tempted to project that onto Jesus, to project onto him a proclivity to wrong us the way these earthly authorities have. But this fails to understand that Christ did not come to be served, Mark 10, 45 tells us, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Unlike earthly authorities that fail us continually, who only tend to care for themselves, Christ, on the other hand, though he was rich, 2 Corinthians 8, 9 says, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you by his poverty might become rich. 
our king set aside his divine right, bore our griefs and carried our sorrows. He was oppressed and afflicted, pierced for our transgressions, crushed for our iniquities. Yet he humbled himself to the point of death on our behalf, even death on a cross. Christ's authority is not only limitless in its greatness, it is also, praise God, limitless in its goodness because Christ himself is limitless in both. His authority is unlike any other, both in quality, my sheep hear my voice, and in quantity, no one will snatch them out of my hand. Charles Spurgeon, I think, captured this well when he said, Christ's reign in his church is that of a shepherd king. He has supremacy, but it is the superiority of a wise and tender shepherd over his needy and loving flock. He, commend, he commands and receives obedience, but it is the willing obedience of the well-cared-for sheep, rendered joyfully to their beloved shepherd, whose voice they know so well. He rules by the force of love and the energy of goodness. To rightly understand Christ's authority is to understand our own weakness and limitation. To accept our own ability to do anything about our sin and death, but it is also to understand Christ's authority is forever and for always for our good. That Christ has regarded my helpless estate and has shed his own blood for my soul. That Christ, by his own authority, has laid down his life for us, his sheep. That our sin, not in part, but the whole, is nailed to the cross and we bear it no more. So, beloved, the first thing to see in the text today is that Christ's authority is unequaled. We mustn't miss this. But the second thing we should see is this, that Christ's commands are unmerited. You may be raising an eyebrow to that one. You'll, you'll see what I mean here in a second. In verses 19 to tw- the first part of 20. He says, go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. The commands of Christ, the ones he gives us here, are broad. Go, make disciples. Yet they are simultaneously very specific. These are the Christian's marching orders. So the going here is assumed. The actual word there is more literally having gone out or as you go along. So the why of this is because Christ has all authority. We just covered that in the first section. The what that we're to do as we go is make disciples. The who is of all nations And the how is twofold. First, by baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. 
baptism marks the beginning of the new life. So as Baptists, we believe that disciples are not born, but rather born again, made to be new creations through faith in Christ. Last week, we had three come and do this very thing. And Stephen Bowles specifically came as one who had previously been baptized as a child, but now he came to be baptized as a disciple. We as Baptists believe that baptism does not make us disciples, but makes us, but marks us, sorry. It does not make us disciples, but it marks us as disciples. But making disciples does not end with the mark of discipleship, does it? There's a second part of the how. That second part is teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you. And what has Jesus commanded us? Well, we could get into some serious detail, but maybe this is sufficient. To love the Lord our God with all our heart, soul, mind, strength. To love our neighbor as ourselves. Now, to do this, we must deny ourselves, take up our cross daily and follow him. To do this, we must go and make disciples of all nations. But if baptism spiritually marks us as being restored to the image of God and the likeness of God, making and teaching disciples restores us to the spiritual task of being fruitful and multiplying that was given in Genesis 1. I'll say that again. If baptism marks us as being truly conformed again to the image of God in Christ Jesus, as Genesis 1.26 says that he made them, male and female, in his image and likeness, then teaching, making and teaching disciples is the be fruitful and multiply element, to fill the earth with more image bearers of Christ and to subdue all creation under the reign of King Jesus. But here is where the misunderstanding comes in. It's when we see Christ's commands as burdens rather than as blessings. When we see them as what we have to do, but really rather would not, instead of what we get to do with Jesus, which we'll get to here in a minute. If to embrace Christ's authority is to embrace our inability to become righteous, then to embrace Christ's commands is to embrace our inability to behave righteously. Thus, it is all, all, all of his grace. Both our salvation and the sanctifying work he has given us to do in his name to go to all nations and make disciples. Just as we are by our own efforts, unworthy of the righteousness with which Christ has clothed us, so we are also unworthy of the gracious task that he has bestowed upon us to be his disciples and to make more disciples. Christ has given us this delightful duty of disciple-making. Christ's commands on their own are worth following just on the sole merit that they come from Christ himself. But even more so, grace upon grace to us, because in following Christ's commands, we regain our true created 
purpose, to know God and to make him known, to glorify God and to enjoy him forever, as the catechism says. But more than just our unworthiness, obedience to Christ's commands is even more so about his infinite worth. Jesus said in John 14, 15, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. Obedience to the commands flows from knowing and loving the commander and being loved by him. We love and serve him because he first and fully has loved us and served us and shown us how we are to live. We then obey Christ because we have tasted so deeply of his love for us that we joyfully go forth in his grace and on his mission. Obedience to Christ's commands is where we find our deepest joy and also find our greatest good. This is why John writes in his first epistle that Christ's commandments are not burdensome, There is joy and eagerness in knowing that by his infinite grace, the king has included us in proclaiming his kingdom to the ends of the earth. With newness of life, then inevitably comes newness of living. If we have been truly born again in Christ, made to be new creations in him, then the entire reason we live is new as well. We live no longer to gratify our flesh as though it was our master, but we now live to glorify our king. And our king is glorified when we lovingly obey him, willingly and joyfully going forth in his commands to go forth and bear much fruit in his name. So, college student, Christ has strategically placed you at this university, at this time, with these professors and with these classmates to go and make disciples. At home, mom, Christ has given you of the greatest of his blessings, that of being, that of being the person who spends more time with your children than anyone else and can impart to them the wisdom and knowledge of Christ to make disciples. Your home is thus a training ground to raise up your children to be Christ's disciples. Business owner, if it is Christ who has given you your ingenuity, who has given you your determination and your success, he has given you the employees, the customers or clients, even the very location of your business so that the light of Christ might be seen in your integrity and you, might be, and you might give an answer for the hope that is within you. Nine to five worker, you've been given eight hours a day, five days a week, to interact with two kinds of people, fellow disciples of Jesus and the nations Christ has sent you to. Redeem that time. Make the most of those hours for Christ's sake. Minimum wage earner, understand that your pay and your position is not an indication of your worth before the king. 
but it is an opportunity for you to tell of the worth of him who has paid the wages of your sin. Senior adult in assisted living or nursing home, the Lord Jesus has extended your life to see these days. And he has placed you with others, including your caregivers, to make disciples until your dying breath. Teacher, if there are so-called educators who can discuss their sexual preferences and gender identity they self-proclaim with their students and have complete impunity, I beg you, do not be afraid to tell your students of the hope you have they can offer to them in Christ. Wherever we are and whatever we do, if we ourselves are Christ's disciples, our task is making disciples of all nations. It's not an option, not a suggestion, not a request. It is a command, but it is a good command. Jesus never said that following these commands or fulfilling his commission would be easy. In fact, he said the exact opposite. But he promised it would be worth it. The British Puritan John Owen said this, God has work to do in this world. And to desert it because of its difficulties and entanglements is to cast off his authority. It is not enough that we be just, that we be righteous and walk with God in holiness, but we must also serve our generation. God has a work to do and not to help him is to oppose him. Disciple making is indeed a blessing to us. Unmerited, unearned, but given in grace by Christ. It's a blessing for those who don't yet know Christ's love as well as for all of us who do. So, we have now seen that Christ's authority is unequaled, that Christ's commands are unmerited, and thirdly, and finally, that Christ's presence is unending. The second half of verse 20 says, and behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Now, maybe you're like me, how I've been in the past, and this is kind of something you just kind of skip over. Like the, the part we just covered, that's, that's the meat and potatoes of the Great Commission. Not so. And perhaps it's easy to think when we read this, this command of Jesus that we just talked about, to go and make disciples. Perhaps it's easy to think, well, if Jesus would have just guaranteed that I would be successful when I went forth to make disciples, then, then I would gladly go do it every day. If he would have promised that I would not say something to embarrass myself or that I would know the answer to whatever questions people ask me or just that I wouldn't mess it all up, then I would be so confident in sharing the gospel. But Jesus does not say, and behold, I promise that everything will go well and everyone will listen to you. Or I assure you that you will succeed. Or everyone will like you and accept you and say great things about you. He says, I am with you always to the end of the age. Jesus 
calculated every word he ever spoke. He is the incarnate word of God, for crying out loud. No word, he says, should fall on deaf ears. He didn't say, I guarantee you success, because what he said is better. Jesus, the incarnate and eternal word of God, is with us as we go forth in the person of the Holy Spirit who has promised to send to us. So when we go forth to make disciples, we go in Christ's authority and we go with his presence. If our fear is what keeps us from heralding the greatest news ever told, that Christ came into the world to save sinners, then it's simply this. We are relying upon ourselves, not upon Christ. And reliance upon self will not bring about the success that Christ seeks. Because apart from him, he says, you can do nothing. But he also says, what is impossible with men and women, what is impossible with me and with you, is possible with God. And God is with us, Emmanuel. He's not just Emmanuel at Christmas time. He's Emmanuel always to the end of the age. For while our efforts to share the gospel may not meet our criteria of success, if we will be faithful to just open our mouth and speak the truth of Christ, the Lord promises in Isaiah 55, 11, this word shall not return to me empty but it shall accomplish that which I purpose and shall succeed in the thing which I sent it, for which I sent it. Guys, ladies, it's not my word that is living and active, Hebrews 4.12, but Christ's. It is not your word that is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, 2 Timothy 3.16, but his. Our fear puts attention not on Christ and his presence, nor on our neighbor and their perilous needs, their perilous state. Fear places the attention on us. And Christ knew this, which is why he says, I am with you always. It's why over and over in the gospel accounts, he tells them, Fear not. And what does the old familiar 23rd Psalm say? The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. He makes me to lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. And even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil and my cup overflows. Surely goodness and loving kindness shall follow me all the days of my life, and I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Does this well-known psalm not point us to the abiding presence of our good shepherd? 
the one who has laid down his life for us, his sheep. We rightly declare with scripture that Jesus is the Lamb of God. Absolutely. But too often we forget that he is also the Lion of Judah. Charles Spurgeon rightly asserted, the fear of God is the death of every other fear. Like a mighty lion, it chases all others before it. If we love and fear the Lord, we need not be afraid of anything, for he is with us. The same spirit that hovered over the face of the waters in Genesis 1-2, before creation was spoken to existence, is the same spirit of truth Jesus promised dwells with you and will be in you, John 14, 17. So, college student, the same God who was with Abraham when he called him out of his home in Ur of the Chaldeans, away from his family, he is with you. He is with you in your land of sojourning called the University of Alabama. At home mother, the same God who was with Moses at the burning bush before Pharaoh through the Red Sea and on top of Mount Sinai, he is with you. He is with you as you fan the flame of Christ in your children day in and day out. As you face their moments of defiance like Pharaoh, as you wade through seas of laundry and tears and experience the wonders of teaching your children Christ's word. Business owner, the same God who is with Joshua to be strong and courageous in battle is with you as you go to war daily with the tension between promoting Christ and promoting yourself, with the temptation to trust self and do what is lucrative, or on the other hand, the calling to trust Christ and do what is right. Nine to five worker, shift worker, minimum wage earner, the same God who is with Nehemiah to rebuild the walls and the temple in Jerusalem is with you in the day in and day out, sometimes monotonous tasks to fulfill through you a greater work than what your eyes can see or your hands can do. Senior adult, the same God with the prophets speaking thus says the Lord until their dying day is with you in these latter years of your life that you may proclaim his excellencies to those who are around you and pray that he raises up the next generation to go and reap his harvest in the world. Teacher, the same God who is with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego when they would not bow to the godless decrees of Nebuchadnezzar and were then thrown into the fiery furnace, yet remained unharmed, not even a singe, not even a smoke smell on their clothes. That same God is with you as you navigate the fiery trials of teaching students alone, but then also defy the godless edicts handed down from any level of government who would tell you to shut up about the name of Christ. Christ has given you whatever your position is. He has given it to you. He has made it possible. The scholarship, the job, the family, he will see it through. Trust him. 
know that he is with you. And greater is he who is within you than he who is in the world. Jesus does not guarantee our success as we might define it. But he does guarantee his presence, which is so much better. Christ's continued presence with us through the Holy Spirit is the source of true success for our mission. The source of true strength that enables us to resist sin. The source of true joy in this life as a foretaste of what is coming. That Revelation 21 portrays for us in all of its splendor that the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning nor crying nor pain anymore for those former things have passed away. Christ's presence is unending. His authority is unequaled. His commands to us are unmerited. And though we are prone to misunderstand each of these, our ultimate problem with authority, the ultimate reason that we resist his commands, and the ultimate reason we ignore his presence is because every human heart has within it cosmic treason. The cosmic treason that makes us want to supplant God from his throne and ascend to it ourselves that we might be God of our own life. Yet, even in the depths of our sin, there is hope. If we would but look to Christ in faith. Faith in Christ is where each of us must begin. And today whether Christ is drawing you to turn from your sin and to be his disciple from this day forward for the very first time, or whether you are already his disciple but need to turn over to him some aspect of your life that has been preventing you from living out his great commission to you. Whatever it may be, whoever you are, may every one of us here today respond to Christ's call with the words of the great hymn that we're going to sing in just a moment. All to Jesus I surrender. All to him I freely give. I will ever love and trust him. In his presence daily live. I surrender all. I surrender all. All to thee, my blessed Savior. I surrender all. Because Christ's authority is unequaled, our allegiance to him and our affection for him should be unrivaled. Because Christ's commands are unmerited, our commitment to following them should be unwavering. And because Christ's presence is unending, our perseverance for him on his mission in this world should be unafraid. To God be the glory. Let's pray.
Lord God, we are so thankful that all authority in the cosmos belongs to you. Every moment and every molecule is yours. Lord, let our hearts be such that they say, have thine own way, Lord. That we surrender our all to you. For Lord, there is where we will find joy. There is where we find fulfillment. There is we find is where we find eternal life with you. What we have to gain is you, God. And anything we would lose, we should be happy to depart with to have you. Lord, maybe that be the response of our hearts today. In Christ's name I pray.